Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Over the past few months, there have been at least five high-profile student-athlete suicides on campuses across the nation. It's a frightening and sobering trend that requires colleges and universities to take a serious look at their infrastructure in place that can support the mental health and well-being of athletes. Universities and colleges are aware that they need to continue to combat the stigma around mental health and to ensure that they have the resources in place for those who need it. But post-pandemic, this is just one of the many challenges vying for limited resources and attention of the university's leadership team. There are creative ways to tackle this important issue, and I have two guests today who are working with colleges and universities to do just that. From fully evaluating existing risk and compliance programs to helping bring together varied student activism and grassroots initiatives, they can help provide a lens to your university to clearly evaluate the issue and offer actionable solutions to formalize structures for positive behavioral interaction and support. Rachel Barabo is a former sportscaster and founder of the movement, I'm Changing the Narrative. Since 2018, she's been visiting college campuses to visit to speak with student athletes, coaches, administrators, and promote the importance of mental health, leadership, self-care, life after sports, social justice, and other issues. As a mental health advocate, Rachel works to fight stigma and hopes to create a willingness within the college community to build an environment that supports student mental health and well-being. Adrian Lamette is senior manager in Baker Tilly's risk man advisory practice, specializing in higher education. She focuses on what steps institutions need to take to offer the resources college athletes and students need. In addition, she assesses risk and completes regulatory assessments to ensure campuses are proactively aligning their efforts to be impactful and in compliance. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel and Adrian. Hi. Thank you for having us. <laughs> So glad. This is such an important conversation on so many levels, uh, and I'm really <clears throat> grateful for the two of you to be here today. I want to start off with a, a deeply painful letter that was shared with the college community by a Vanderbilt student athlete about mental health, and this is part of what she said. She wrote, playing a college sport is just hard. It is really hard. And if you like to have a life outside of your sport, which many of us student athletes do, you're then taking on a self-imposed responsibility to maintain your academics, your social life, your career, and your relationships, all while learning to navigate complicated feelings, conflict, the wavering sense of worthiness, and having your basic psychological needs met as a young adult. Playing a sport in college honestly feels like playing fruit ninja with a butter knife. There are watermelons and cantaloupes being flung at you from all different directions. While you're trying to defend yourself using one of those flimsy cafeteria knives that can't seem to even spread room temperature butter. Mm. And besides and beyond the chaos and overwhelm, overwhelmingness of it all, you've got coaches and parents and trainers and professors who expect you to come away from the experience unscathed, fruit salad in hand. Mm. Rachel, tell me your reaction to this and how this helps to explain where many of our college athletes are today. Um, my reaction to it is I'm, I'm saddened, but, um, you know, I've been doing this, my, my work, and I'll share with you in a little bit what that work is. I've been doing this for almost six years now. 
So um, as sad as this is to say, that is very common. That sounds like many of the messages that I get in private um, because I, uh, when I go speak, I, I, I continue a conversation, a relationship with many of my athletes, many of my coaches, thousands of them. And so for me, it is painfully reminiscent of the messages that I get every day. I'm too stressed out. My family, the expectations, mental health, I'm playing with a broken heart. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm not sleeping. I'm all of these things, right? Um, and, and so it makes me sad, but I hope that we're at a place and that's why I'm so honored to do this podcast with you where we really hopefully have the collegiate world's uh, attention um, from the top down. And we can say we need, as you mentioned in, in your article, we're at an inflection point. We need this, this whole idea of I got it. We got it. The college has got it. We don't need outside help. No, no. We need every voice every every background every age every every socioeconomic every ethnic background every experience we need everybody to come together on this crisis because if we're going to call it anything else i think we're doing it a disservice we have young people that are are taking their lives we have people that are experiencing burnout in the administration um, in, a, in a radical way and so it is going to take all of us holding hands and saying it is not about me it's not about my own ego or we got this, but we need to all come together to try to um, solve what we're dealing with right now. So let's step back and look at a larger uh, angle. And I know how, how presidents and senior leaders think, but they think, okay, we've already given the athletic department a psychologist or maybe even two. But one of the concerns I see is that we're asking these experts to be like Swiss army knives, required to deal with performance issues, anxiety issues, depression, and a host of other challenges. Adrian, talk with us about staffing a department of 500 to 1,000 athletes. These are big athletic departments. Are there best practices around ratios between number of players and number of specialists? I think it's a great question. And I think to start off, the really great thing is that our university presidents and our leadership, uh, you know, broadly and also within the athletic departments, they're realizing the importance of this. I think we look back a couple of years ago, um, that might not have been the case. It wasn't the case. Um, so I think the good news is right now we're seeing the need and the willingness to provide these resources. The problem is our mental health professionals are facing the same type of burnout. So now we are at the point like, yes, let's hire them. There's nobody to hire. Uh, I was talking with Rachel a little while ago. I've been doing an audit uh, at a local university for quite some time now, almost six months. Uh, and one of the problems in actually getting the audit done, it's been on student mental health and, and resources and services is because they've lost two directors mm -hmm. in six months. And so how can we ask them, you know, provide us what we need in terms of the documentation, provide us, you know, with responses to what we're seeing. They're, they don't have the, the, the boots on the ground to actually do it. So it, there's absolutely uh, industry best practices. There are um, uh, accreditation programs for college counseling that provide ratios. And it's about, um, I think one of the leading ratios is one counselor for every 1000 students. Okay. But as Rachel will tell you, and some of her uh, really, really just heartbreaking stories, um, that's not enough right now. Yeah. So universities are having to get really, really creative. And that's that's broadly, that's the student population. So it's one to 1000 for the for, for the student population. But you know, as, as we know, and as that Vanderbilt letter really talked about, the demands are so much more on our student athletes. So having that specific focus is, uh, it's really challenging. I mean, Rachel, 
you were telling a really you know sad story about some of the students and what you're hearing in terms of timelines and what they're seeing. I'd love to like turn it over to you and have you share a little bit. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, um, it there was one particular student athlete recently that said, Rachel, here's the deal. We do ask for help and there's a month wait to see a professional. And everything that you're both saying is, is absolutely accurate. I will add on to that and tell you that um, division one coaches have told me, Hey, um, let me be real with you because we have uh, within my movement, I'm changing the narrative. We have a psychologist and a mindfulness expert that volunteer their time with us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when they can't get in to see somebody, you know, we always talk to the coach, talk to the school, they they'll use our resources. Um, but what this coach told me was, Hey, on top of everything else we're facing with burnout and the lack of availability, do you have anybody who's a minority? Do you have anybody who's a female? Do you have anybody that looks like my athlete? Because that diversity matters when it comes to their experiences. And I'm like, wow, like, so just, it's another layer where if I can wave a magic wand, I would hire, you know, I would hire so many more people from, from diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences, as well as the numbers needed to be added. And then the, the, the timeframe, but look, you know, the timeframe is not something that is um, that is just within the collegiate community. I mean, a, a girlfriend of mine did a study in Colorado. She did an unofficial study, if you will, for the mental health uh, system in Colorado. And she called around and, and called around to like five or six people within Denver, five or six different outfits and said, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. And, and indicated that she was struggling in terms of feeling suicidal. And each one of them said, it's a month wait. And none of them, here's where she wants to, she wants to change the system. None of them then said, well, here's the crisis hotline or here's things you can do or here's. So I I share that to say is this is an an issue that we're facing all across the spectrum within this country at this point in history. And uh, I I certainly think we can talk about within collegiate, you know, sports and, and administration, but I think it's also all across this country. It's resonating. It's resonating with even just the article I posted online last night for Forbes. It has gotten so much engagement. I just can't believe it. And one of the points in the article was that the administrators in college athletics are burned out, exhausted. Some of them are retiring or they're leaving the industry. So the gaps in all of these service plans that we had so nicely laid out before the pandemic have just widened up big time. one of the concerns I also hear, and Rachel, maybe you hear this a little bit more often, is that there just aren't enough psychologists and psychiatrists in the industry because they've left. They're burned out. They're overwhelmed. Is that what you're hearing as well? Yeah, and that's what I'm hearing as well. I have a, a girlfriend who is a psychologist. She started a practice um, in Nashville, and she's super smart, guys. If, if, if she wasn't a friend, a lifelong friend, she would be my therapist. You know, she's, she's just that talented. And the things that she shared with me just... The amount of, just imagine um, sitting with five people a day. That's a lot of clients, three people a day. Let's, let's go there. And hearing the most complex stories on trauma, on pain, on, on just the you know, abuse, on these things that have happened in their lives. And you as a human being are meant to process that yeah. and go home and feed your dog or feed your child or be a, you know, a work. and so I know on a different level, that is what some of the administration you mentioned in your article, some of the trainers, some of the student yeah. athletics 
administration that that feel like, hey, you know, like I'm overworked and I'm not appreciated. I'm also the first person for you to come after when things don't go right. So I just love it again. I want to just reiterate the fact that we're having this conversation today, because for me, the first step or baby step towards any sort of solution is to is to keep talking about these things and having open and honest discourse. Appreciate that. Adrian, I'm going to direct this next one to you to help us get started because so much of what we do in higher education is we ask the first line of, of defense for a, a possible crisis that a student or an athlete is going through to be is to be the teacher standing in front of them, the advisor standing in front of them, the coach standing in front of them, recognizing that it is indeed a crisis. Are we asking too much of those professionals? to be able to say, okay, I see you're really in trouble. Let's help you, let's get you help. It's a great question. Uh, and I'm not a psychologist by training. I have a business background. Um, regardless of whether or not that's the right thing to do, I think that that's one of the, the best practices or just leading practices that we are seeing it is because so many of those individuals have that close touch, that first touch. Um, a lot of students feel comfortable going to their, uh, their professors, their advisors. Um, you know, student affairs. So whether or not that's right, uh, it, it's what's happening. And so what we're seeing is a lot of it, uh, institutions pull together, you know, behavioral intervention teams, uh, it's a cross collective group that comes together so that they can, they can compare notes uh, and identify, you know, potentially students that are in distress. Um, and, and it's also, and it's not just the burden on one individual. Again, it's kind of that collective approach. So not sure if it's the right way, but it's something that we've seen a lot of success for. Um, there, there is training, there are resources, and um, we're seeing it with some success. Sadly, not entirely. It's not going to be able to catch everything, but those institutions that have put those um, types of programs into place, um, we're seeing that. But I'd love to go back to, to something you were talking about. I, what I found really staggering in the article that you just posted is, if I'm reading this right, you noted that the individuals with five to 10 years of experience had more burnout. And so if I combine that with what I read in the Vanderbilt letter about, you know, these are our formative years. These are, you know, when we are learning how to deal with all these stressors, I, I kind of carried that forward, right? So if we aren't helping our students learn to manage these, uh, these stresses and, and, you know, getting them resources that we need, that's carrying into the workplace. And then I, I'm thinking like, Wow, these are the types of things that we're seeing with our our new hires. You know, even the accounting field and different things like that. And 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 that letter could have been written by you know one of our team members who you know, we have quite a few. I think I've shared with you former D1 athletes that played at the very high level and that have been really moved by a lot of what they're seeing in the industry right now and the suicides. And it's like could have been written verbatim. Um, so I'm just like, wow, if you're seeing that type of stress in athletics administration from those, you know those, you know, five to 10 years of experience. I'm like, what does that mean for the rest of us? Um, that was really just, I, I found that staggering and I just, that was really meaningful. So I just wanted to kind of share that. No, no, thanks for that. Um, uh, Rachel, when you deal, meet with coaches, I assume you talk with them about what they want for the presentation for their, for their teams. And then maybe you talk with them after about the, the feedback that, that, that you're getting from the athletes how do they process that information? Do they take responsibility for trying to fix it? Or do they say, well, that's why you're here. You're supposed to fix it. I mean, how, how does that work? Well, uh, look, the, the reality is I've been doing this for almost six years. So I've been to 55 plus schools, many of them multiple times. So you can imagine 
<clears throat> that uh, some of those schools have had new coaches. Some I've started with a coach. The coach no, is no longer there. Some <clears throat> I've only visited with football. Some are being, being very progressive. I'm going to call out Utah State. I was just there. Blake Anderson is a dear friend of mine. Um, his wife and my mom battled cancer at the same time, and we lost them both very, very close together. And we were kind of became, we were already friends. We became cancer buddies and caregiver friends. And I just went there and they did something that I found to be pretty revolutionary. Um, Sonny Dykes did it. He's now at TCU as well early on. PJ Fleck has done it. But he, they allowed me to have one session with the players. And, and I like to uh, divide them up into your female athletes, your male athletes, because they're different messages. Right. Uh, so there was a session with your players, a session with coaches only, a session with administration only. And I loved it. Every person that was in, that, that got paid by that university in athletics, any side of administration um, it, attended that talk. Wow. And each message was completely different. It was about self-care and being, and being diligent, I had a, a coach write me a letter afterwards and say, hey, I've always been the person that's, you know, been, I, I feel good about filling my cup. I feel good about taking care of myself. He said, but you reminded me to be like crazy about, diligent about, like check in with myself multiple times. How am I doing? Um, am I okay? Do I need to go take a you know 10 minute walk around the building? Do I need to talk to somebody? Am I, is my, we call it funky junk in my movement, which is bitterness, anger, trauma, unforgiveness. Is it bubbling out of me and onto my staff or mm -hmm. onto my players? So I say all that to say is you have coaches that are incredibly progressive, like PJ Fleck, like Mike Loxley, like, like a Blake uh, Anderson. But then you have coaches that are still working in antiquated ways. And those are the ones that I do my very best to say if I get a player, male or female, to come out of their shell and ask for help and you tell them, toughen up, yeah. suck it up, um, or, you know, I'm going to cry, but some other sort of derogatory, they're going to put their head back in their turtle shell and likely never ask for help again. So I now, it, 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 I was telling Adrian and, and the team at Baker Tilly, whom just love, I was telling them earlier that it's a strong suggestion when I go to a school now. I really, really want to visit with your coaches. I really, really want to visit with your administration because I can visit with the athletes, but if we're not changing the culture from the top down and taking care, it's not just changing the culture, making sure you're good, making sure you're happy, making sure you are well-adjusted, you're dealing with yourself, you're taking care of yourself because self-care is not selfish. So it's different for each one. I do ask, to answer your question quickly, I do ask each coach, before I go in, hey, what's what's going on right now? Yeah. Um, what are you dealing with? Are you dealing with, you know, a, a player's out because they're depressed or a player is out because this is happening or a player's been um, accused of sexual assault? I mean, whatever it may be, I've, I've had all, every end of the spectrum. And um, we talk about everything from mental health, self-care, self-love, interpersonal relationships, purpose beyond athletics or your job. Um, and so legacy, those, those are some of the things that we talk about. I'm dating. So I, I visit with each coach and find out what exactly they want to talk about. Uh, and then we do visit afterwards. What I tell each university, and this is possibly the most important thing I'm going to say, what I tell each university is, please do not. And, and I've heard this before uh, under the radar. Please do not think of having me in is at all an admission that you're not doing your job well. Mm -hmm. I am just another resource for you. Oftentimes, because I'm not an administrator, I'm not a coach. 
they will, they look at me like a mom. I have a very maternal side. So they'll tell me their whole life, Karen. They'll, they'll, they'll share everything with me, either in person and they'll be bawling next to me or they're messaging me later or calling me later. I then, if a player is in trouble, the first place I'm going to call is the college, other than a crisis hotline. It's a college. We're going to get them help immediately. We follow a protocol. So I say to schools, calling me is not saying you can't do it on your own. It's saying we are willing to do anything we can to improve our culture from the inside out, bottom to top, and top to bottom. So I want to build on that point for a second, because I think... I've known a lot of coaches who are very much into controlling what, what the players can and do and can act and how they behave. And they want to be in control of everything. Have you seen that? And if so, what advice do you have for senior campus leaders at either helping that coach identify that that's no longer a strategy that works or perhaps saying that's not part of the culture of our campus and who we are? Such a good question. I've said this for the longest time, even before NIL with the transfer portal. If you're a coach and you have skeletons in your closet, you need to clean them out quickly and expeditiously and do it well and do it right in a healthy manner. Because if you're, I'm just going to be very frank here. If you're a racist, um, if you are a control freak, if you talk down to your players and treat them, what players tell me all the time, they want their coaches to know, because many of them don't. I'm going to be honest, many of them feel like their coaches look at them like a commodity. They're just a number. They come in, they come out. They, they, they desperately want their, their coaches to know who they are besides being an athlete. Mm -hmm. They want them to know what they love, what they care about. They want to feel like a human being, like they love them, like they care about them. And oftentimes that coach may not be a bad person. Maybe they aren't a racist. Maybe they aren't a control freak. They're just overwhelmed in their own way. They've got a lot going on. They're trying to manage. It's a very hard profession, no matter the sport. And so I would say to senior leadership, you got to start having frank conversations. And people ask me all the time, I'm not comfortable talking about mental health. Do you think I'm comfortable standing in front of people bearing my soul and the night I almost took my own life and what led up to that and, and being drugged from one end of the house to the other by my hair, by somebody who claimed to love me? I'm not necessarily comfortable talking about those things. But every time I do, I know that it makes somebody else a little more comfortable in taking off their mask and sharing what they're doing. So I would say it is paramount right now for administration, senior administration, to have those frank conversations with their coaches and say, hey, let me let let Rachel or someone like her or come in and let's talk about these feelings and what they're going through and what she's hearing from athletes and what they're really saying, because right or wrong this is what athletes tell me across the country three reasons they don't ask for help whether it's true or not I don't want to be seen as weak I don't want to lose playing time and I don't want to lose my scholarship right. whether or not they're true those are the three constant things I hear on campuses across the country yeah and losing the scholarship is a huge deal it's always been one of those power things that coaches have lorded over the athlete well if you're not mentally stable then you can't play and if you can't play then you're not staying on scholarship I mean it's a very a very quick trip. So let me shift to Adrian. Adrian, let's talk about the administrative structure here. What advice would you give to senior campus leaders about trying to uncover some of these issues and also try to create a more healthier environment for the staff as well as the athletes? Yeah, so I love, I want to build on what Rachel was talking about is having those frank conversations with the administration. And I think coupled with that, it's giving students an avenue to report if something is not going the way um, that they want, you know, whether or not that's 
you know, hotlines. So most universities have an ethics and compliance hotline that's monitored. I will say it's really interesting. Um, students are not, we're seeing more students make reports to those hotlines uh, and student athletes. You know, there's one institution that, that we work with um, as internal audit that over the past uh, two years, we've had uh, a couple of athletes report different sports about um, their treatment of coaches uh, to the athletes. And so that gets very senior or senior level visibility. I mean, general counsel's looking at that, the CFO is looking at that, the provost is looking at that. Those types of things make their way off oftentimes to the board. Um, and so those, you know, when things come in on hotlines, they're investigated uh, and, and we're taking a look and the universities take action. So definitely have those frank conversations with the coaches and the administration because students are making their way uh, to getting these things out. They're not as shy anymore. I mean, they are really taking their own mental health and their well-being uh, in their own hands. We're seeing that more and more, again, because the stigma is, is starting to, you know, fade away and they're, they're valuing themselves ultimately more than they are their, their passion, which has got to be tough. And Rachel, I, I can't imagine what you see when you talk to these students, but it's making their way. So yeah, I think along with, uh, you know, administration training, the faculty training, that's really, really important, especially in a, in a, a shared governance environment that everybody's on the board, um, that the administrators have that, but also it's the reporting mechanisms. And then lastly, you got to just, you got to make good on having those reporting mechanisms, right? You have to demonstrate that you are doing something about it because right. it, it it's a positive cycle then. Uh, and ultimately, as long as the university is doing something, and in the case of the university I was just mentioning, they did do something. Uh, there were some there were some coaching changes. Um, you know, is, a, is an evaluation and investigation, there were some coaching changes, but actually showing student athletes and, and the university community that you're, that you're serious about it. It's not just lip service. That's, those have been some, some successes. Rachel, before I let you respond, I just want to follow up because this is a this is a problem or at least a thread that I have heard about in different situations. Sometimes athletic departments want to set up their own hotline that is not part of the university's reporting system because they want to keep it in-house. Let me ask Adrian to respond to that and then Rachel, I'm going to come to you. Uh, I would say no. I think in this case, having some type of centralized function with the senior central uh, administration, so you know your CFO, your general counsel, your provost, the president, is really good. I mean, it's not that dissimilar to you know if you think back to the Varsity Blues admission scandal, the fact that athletics had a lot of ability to recruit and admit students with very little central oversight and that decentralization. Um, we saw what happened, right? So I think in this type of case, especially given um, just the importance, it's life or death. It's right. it's literally life or death. You know, having that that central oversight uh, mechanism is is really key for accountability. Rachel. Yeah, and I was just going to say too, it's something that I've shared uh, with with Baker Tilly and just the work we've gotten to do with them and the podcast and different things is you can have world-class, um, you can have world-class resources on your campus. I'm sure some of these, these schools that had, that recently had the, the deaths did have resources. I, I know they did, but if they're not darkening your doorways of the resources, the doorways of the resources, the doorways of the psychologist, then what are we doing? And they're not oftentimes. And that is the issue. How do we get them to go see how we make sure you have enough staff and then go see and to what you both said about the staffing hotline, if I'm an athlete and I'm having, and I'm being bullied by my coach, yeah. why am I going to call a hotline within the athletic? You know what I mean? Like I, I'm going to be too scared of retribution. Yeah. These things happen, you know, and, and um, I've heard of them happening in the athletic world. And, and I know they happen in the, in the, in the work world too. And so 
you know, all of a sudden you, you report something and then your job gets, you know, you get demoted or, you know, your job title changes or you lose your scholarship or you don't have playing time anymore. So we wonder why people are uh, too terrified to ask for help. And so I think absolutely it's having that accountability and being willing again to have those really tough conversations and just say, I know it's not comfortable. No one here is comfortable. I, I was just writing about this and I have a book coming out next year and you mentioned Minnesota in our, in our prep time. Yep. And right after I almost took my own life after losing my mom in 2019, it was the first ever talk that I did totally on mental health, the whole 45 minutes, an hour. And I stood up at the end of, and this illustrates what we're talking about. I stood up, at, you know, here I am at, at this beautiful new facility for Minnesota football, you know, and they're, they're, they're all these players. And I held up the mic and I said, does anybody want to take off the mask? Just like I did. Does anybody want to get real? And guys, I got to tell you, I mean, I was terrified. A cold sweat came across my brow. My heart was, you know, and I'm thinking if no one takes this microphone, <laughs> there's no way out of this. Like I'm going to look like the biggest fool. Yeah. And it was probably only 30 seconds, but it felt like a good 10 minutes and everybody's, you know, they're shifting, they're looking around. And I, and I, I am seriously trying to, you know, plan how to exit this building, you know, with, with any dignity attached to myself. And all of a sudden the player says, I'll go, I'll take it. And he says, you know, I've really, I've been homesick and I've really been struggling how, how, you know, how sad I am. And then another player takes it and he talks about something going on with his mom. And then another player takes it and talking about alcohol. And, and so this meeting that was supposed to only be 45 minutes ended up being like an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> because these players took off the mask and got real with each other. And what I said in the book was possibly for the first time, they saw each other naked and vulnerable, radical vulnerability. They saw everything about each other. And that team played extraordinarily together and for each other. And so I say that to say, I was terrified. I was uncomfortable. They, it was probably terrifying for them. But when you have those conversations, that's when you have the true breakthrough. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So how do administrators evaluate the success of the actual psychologist, practitioner in their dealings and working with teams and players? How do we know they're doing a good job? And I'll leave that to either one of you. You go ahead, Adrian, if you'd like. It's a great question. So, so I mentioned, I mean, from, you know, there's an inter international accrediting organization that accredits college counseling uh, centers and programs, and it's not required to have a college counseling program, but it has a great set of standards that you can look at in terms of metrics and rubrics. Um, so that's one way. Um, you, you could have that. You can take a look and compare your, your programs. You can take a look, I mean, at, at a basic level, although as Rachel will, you know, certainly attest, you know, the use of the services is is not always a good measure, but taking a look, I mean, what it, what is your headcount? What are the number? What's your student population that you're trying to serve? What is the uh, the demand? Um, looking at wait times, how quickly are we able to get them in? How long are we serving students? So so what are some of the metrics by that? Do we have a program in terms? Is it a short term triage that we're going to help students for six to twelve weeks and then potentially transfer them to somebody else depending on what they need? Who are the partners that we have? Um, what are some other types of startup activities? So we've seen a lot of, um, you know, I'm sure as Rachel can also talk to you, student activism that's written out, that has arisen out of this. Students are really yeah. empowered to do more. And actually it's become both preventive and, you know, kind of detective on the back end. So let's 
let's have this resource, a student-led resource uh, and student-led groups, depending on whatever the, the issue is, and, and they're really helping each other. Um, so th there's a lot of different ways you can take a look at it. Um, but again, there are standards, there are metrics. Um, Rachel, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what you see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to build on what you said, you know, when I was when I was at Minnesota a couple of years ago in 2019 to host the first ever mental health game uh, between two Big Ten teams between Minnesota and Maryland, every person in that stadium got a free uh, a free uh, you know booklet, if you will, their their game program that had resources inside of it that had the crisis hotline that had suicide hotline numbers. We did a co um, a co-branded video on the on the board with Minnesota players, Maryland players, Coach Locks, Coach Fleck, myself saying, don't struggle alone. And people said, what do you want to come out of that? And I said, if one person in the stadium felt less alone, if one person in the stadium felt less defective, if one person in the stadium said, I'm going to ask for help, that big bad football player can ask for help. I can too. So look, when I was there, I was there for a couple of days beforehand, I met with student groups that were doing just what, what, what Adrian talked about, activism, Green Bandana Project, different groups that, that said, you know, I said, look, I'll, we'll help you in any way we can from a national perspective. So the activism is going on. The yeah. second reason I bring that up is that we have hosted mental health games. I love when colleges are doing that. We're doing that with three programs this fall, three separate colleges, and that just encourages further dialogue. Um, and I, I think that's a great thing. And then the, the, the other point is, I think you need to ask your athletes and your students to anonymously rate how these psychologists are performing. Did they help me? Um, did they get me? Did they, you know, uh, did I achieve, you know, I may not be completely meant in a great you know, place, but, but I'm better. Um, and so I think if you can do that as well, we, we get we get job rated, we get job performances and anything else. Why aren't we, we getting that within colleges when it comes to our psychologists? It's a great point. And you mentioned these uh, gun violence, racial and social justice issues and managing the athletes desire to share their voices. How can practitioners and coaches walk alongside together in helping athletes with expressing their frustration about these particular issues? Look, what I love about where we are in the world is, and, and it, it relates to a question we talked about earlier about, you know, coaches and making sure that they are who they are purport to be. You've got to be these days because a, a player will use a transfer portal, not necessarily out of an emotional decision, but if you're not treating them right, they're going to go play somewhere else. They just are. Never have players had more uh, autonomy, more, more of a voice, uh, more power, more opportunity to, you know, to earn money, to do those things. And so good on them. Um, so I would say for a practitioner and a coach, you want to encourage players to do that. So um, again, I mentioned earlier, I'm getting ready to turn into a book, man, turn in a book manuscript, but just last month, we started a mental health, uh, in mental health month of May, we started an athlete coalition. And what is that? That is athletes from all across the country, everywhere from South Dakota, California, Maryland, Minnesota, um, all over the country. And this small group, just to start with, of like 10 or so athletes, Utah, they are going to be leaders in their own communities, on their own campuses, planning events, doing things. And all we're doing at I'm Changing the Narrative is just, is just, edifying them, is lifting them up, is giving them a platform to say, hey, we'll help you do that. Do you want to start that march? Do you want to do that movie night in the in the park? Do you want to do, you know, uh, organize this service project? 
So they get the feeling of what it feels like to lead, to serve, to give, to have their voice heard. And they are the ones that are responsible for the change in their communities. And all we are doing within my movement is just empowering the next generation. And we can't be afraid. The coaches can't be afraid of that. I, I know some coaches are very afraid of that kind of energy sometimes. And the coaches have to really embrace that. That's my sense. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's their own. If I may, again, I am a mental health advocate. I'm just a former sportscaster who quit sportscasting while I was employed by Sirius to do this. I mean, this is how passionate I am about this. Again, I almost took my own life and I decided to start talking about it. And it's blown the roof off of what was already very, you know, very successful movement. And so you, you've got to, as a coach, if you're uncomfortable with your players having a voice, if you're uncomfortable with your players being budding leaders, that's within you. That is something that you've got to work out. That's something in you that's insecure, something you don't want out there, something because we should be encouraging. I speak to high school students and and I just spoke to a youth group the other day and college students. I'm like, yeah, we're out here doing good work, but you guys are the ones, the narrative changers. You guys are the ones that are going to be making real significant change. So if a coach is hesitant to have that energy in their program, I really need them, would encourage them to look in the mirror and figure out what it is inside of them that is hesitant about that. Because we need these young people advocating, stepping out, taking action. Because the more we stick our heads in the sand, the more we are going to have more losses, more loss of life. That's a powerful way to sort of close this, this point, but I don't want to end the podcast on um, where kids are falling through the cracks, where athletes are falling, where staff are falling through the cracks. So Adrian, if you could start, provide us with one or two examples of the gaps in the safety nets on campus and how campuses, especially those that have limited funding might address these gaps. Yeah, I think it just goes back to the uh, the uh, example I talked about early in the discussion is just the fact that the mental health resources, the student health, they're struggling as much as their student, um, you know, student populations. So we just don't necessarily see the headcount in terms of counselors being available. It, it's not even uh, universities having the luxury, like Rachel was talking about, having um, you know counselors of color or women. It's just, do we even have people? in-house right now to serve. And if we don't, do we at least have partners identified whether or not they're local resources, um, telemedicine options, although of course there's, there's you know, pros and cons that we learned throughout our, our past couple of years of the pandemic related to the use of those, but do we have the resources? Right now we just don't, as Rachel talked about, you know, having a month long wait. Um, some students might be able to, but often not. I mean, if, if, you're, if you have the courage to uh, go and seek mental health on campus, you likely need it now and not four weeks from now. So that's that's a challenge right now. Um, uh, Karen, I mean, you're a researcher. You can read the studies that show that uh, mental health professionals are burnout and that they're fleeing higher, act, higher education. Um, so that's gonna be a, a big challenge. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, from a leadership standpoint, I think most of our college leaders now recognize this is an issue. Our boards recognize that this is an issue. They're asking, what are you guys doing? Um, so now it's more of just a, you know, a coordination of communication. Again, resource, uh, human resources are an issue right now, but we have the tone at the top. We have the, the direction. Now we're just, how do we put our arms and wrap our arms around that and try to execute? Uh, I, 
I think like so many industries, it's just the people thing right now. We don't have the people on campus. And so we've got the messaging out. Um, our students know that there are resources, but when they're, when they're getting there, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to deliver. That's the gap that, I, that we're seeing right now. It's a great point. And also, as we mentioned in the beginning, it's important to take care of staff too and provide resources, even if it's employee, employee assistance programs that are off campus, extremely important to, to know that, they, that you do care about their mental health, their emotional health, because we're all as a country going through an awful, awful lot right now. Hey, Karen, um, if yes, I may, sure. I can make a fantastic point. Look, when people know you care about them, they will do anything for you. And that's, that's what I'm trying to teach these coaches and administration across the country. And these players know you truly care about them. You talk about playing together. They will play. They'll run through brick walls for you. They'll play their guts out for you. The same goes in offices. I had a small business owner that listened to one of my podcasts. I was a guest on and he reported, sent an email to the podcast host. And he said, you know, she really like opened my mind to a lot of things. So I went back to my office. I called a Friday meeting and I said, how's everybody doing? You know, what's going on? Like, I care about you. And this particular business owner, I think, instituted like one or two mental health days a month um, where they could go and, and if they needed the day off, they could do things for themselves, a personal day. They had like service days. He changed what he, how he operated within the office. And we all know what happened. Productivity shot up, sales shot up because one, he, he, they knew he cared about them. And they were happier. They were better. They were yeah. more well-rounded. Yeah. And so I love that you talked about whether that's, you know, employee compensation packages in terms of, you know, mental health resources or uh, like I said, a mental health day or a half day on Friday or a service day to do something that matters to you, that makes you happy, whether that's a company initiative where you all get together and, and plan something that will, you know, will help your communities. I, I work with law enforcement as well. And I was working with a group and, and I said, um, you know, in terms of changing the, the idea or the narrative um, on that people, you know, police officers don't care about our community, right? They may not care about us, um, that some people have. I said, how about you do a movie night in the park and you bring the barbecue, you bring the screen, you bring the, you know, and I said, and you really engage with the community. And so they were like, huh. Yeah, that's awesome. What not when people know you care, this is my point. When people know you care, they'll do anything. And I think just to build off what Adrian said, if you don't have the resources, you know, start looking into federal grants, start looking into your uh, your boosters, start looking into local businesses, start looking into um, different practices in your community that maybe again a psychologist or psychiatrist would volunteer a couple of extra hours if you have an overage that month where you need a student scene. I think these are all little small steps that when, when, collect, when collectively put together would make a huge difference. Could not agree more, could not agree more. Uh, Rachel and Adrian, this has been a fantastic uh, a conversation and, and it has flown by. There's so much here and that's why it's, I'm glad it's a podcast. So people can rewind and re-listen and consider some of the suggestions, ideas, and hopefully uh, provide one more link in the chain of trying to build better mental health practices in our athletic departments across campus. Thank you both for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.